Thank you, worship team, for that awesome start to our morning. Now we're going to continue worshiping as we go to the Word of God today. How many of you remember the Back to the Future movies? You guys remember Back to the Future? Yeah. I mean, yeah, we got an enthusiastic guest up here. These are some of my favorite movies of all time. You know, Marty McFly and the Doc, you know, and the, time, the DeLorean time machine. Yeah, it, 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 they just don't make movies like this anymore, you know? Uh, what a great movie and a, actually a great series, a trilogy of movies. If you haven't seen them, I'd highly recommend you check them out. They're a lot of fun. But the whole premise of the Back to the Future movies is uh, Marty McFly and the Doc, they're racing back and forth throughout time trying to fix all these mistakes that screw up all of history uh, because of their time travels. And it's a lot of fun. You may remember one of the key characters in the Back to the Future movies is this guy. Remember uh, Biff Tannen, right? Why don't you make like a tree and get out of here, right? <laughs> Biff was great. And uh, one of the main storylines in the Back to the Future movies, if you recall, Biff Tannen goes into the future. He steals the time machine and he steals a sports almanac from the future, from the year 2000. And he goes back to his 1950s era self, his teenage self, and he gives him this sports almanac with all the scores of all the major sporting events from 1950 through the year 2000. And because Biff now has all of these scores for the next 50 years, he ends up changing the entire course of history by betting on all of these sporting events because he knows the outcome. And so he ends up becoming this multimillionaire. He becomes this huge media mogul. He ends up running the whole nation eventually, all because of his ability to see into the future because of this sports almanac. And if you recall, you know, the whole storyline then is how Marty McFly and Doc have to go racing back and forth in time trying to correct Biff's alterations of the future. You know, as I was thinking about these Back to the Future movies this week, it got me thinking about this question. What would you do if you had the ability to see into the future? You know, have you ever thought about that? What would you do if you had the op opportunity to look ahead into the future? Would it affect your choices? Would it affect the way you chose to live your life? You know, what, how, what would you do with that? I mean, would you race up to the local gas station and buy this next week's Powerball numbers? Or, or maybe you would note the day of your death and start crossing off items on your bucket list. Or maybe you'd become a superhero and start racing around the globe trying to save people and rescue people from tragedies and catastrophes, right? I think, friends, if we knew the future, it would change a lot about how we lived right now here in the present. Now, here's the encouraging thing for us this morning, and this is what we're going to focus on. As Christians, friends, we believe that we are people who have been shown the future, that God has revealed the future to us. And we call this prophecy or Bible prophecy. And God gives us prophecy for telling the future precisely because he wants to transform us in the present. Prophecy about tomorrow is intended to motivate us to action today. That's why God gives us prophecy. You see, God reveals prophecy about the future for two main reasons. Number one, to encourage us in our faith. And number two, to motivate us to gospel living. Now friends, I'll admit, 
it's sometimes difficult for us to discern the meaning of some of these prophecies we find in the Bible. You know what I'm saying, right? Have you ever read through like Revelation or Daniel or, or even Zechariah like we're going to come to today? And you read some of this stuff and it's like, what, what is going on here, right? I mean, there's all this crazy imagery, right? I was speaking at a Bible school over in Oregon a couple months ago. And uh, one afternoon I saw a young man studying in the student lounge area. And uh, he was reading one of these Old Testament prophetic books. And I went up to him and I said, well, what do you think about what you're reading there? And this kid, he was a fairly new Christian. He was a surfer. And uh, he said to me, he said, brah, he's like, brah, I'm just trying to wrap my head around this stuff. There's some trippy stuff in this book. (laughs) You know, we might not say it the same way, but there's some trippy stuff in this book. You know what I'm saying? And we're going to come to some of that stuff this this morning as we open up the book of Zechariah and look at chapters four through six. Here's an interesting question, though. Have you ever wondered why God uses all of this cryptic imagery in prophecy? You know, if God wanted us to know the future, if, if, if he just wanted us to know the future and he wanted to reveal that to us, why didn't he just give us a straightforward report? You know, I mean, he could have played it out on like a movie screen or like a news show. He could have written it up like a newspaper article with specific details. But no, instead he gives us all this cryptic imagery that we have to try to figure out and make sense of. Wouldn't it have been better if he had just given us a straightforward reporting of the future? But here's the thing, friends. One of God's primary goals in prophecy is to encourage our faith. God wants us to learn to trust him. And he wants us to learn to walk by faith. And so when it comes to prophecy about the future, here's the key thing you need to understand. God gives us sufficient knowledge but he doesn't give us exhaustive knowledge. Okay? He gives us sufficient knowledge, but not exhaustive knowledge. Prophecy, friends, isn't meant to be a tour guide giving us detailed information every step of the way. I remember a few years back, I had an opportunity to go to Paris, France, and, and uh, I went and I visited the, the Louvre, the world-famous museum, the Louvre. And when you walk into the Louvre, they have in the visitor center there, they have these little really cool pre-recorded tours that you can put on these headphones, almost every language in the world, and they will literally walk you through the whole museum step by step. I mean, they get so specific, they tell you how many steps to take. If you walk 10 steps to the right, in turn, you'll notice this painting on the wall and it tells you all about this painting and then it says, and if you'll turn now 180 degrees, right behind you there's a statue by Michelangelo and it tells you all about it and now if you walk down the hall another 20 steps, you'll come to the, I mean, it's that specific, right? And a lot of people want Bible prophecy to be like that. They expect it to be these specific details about the future, and so a lot of people will actually read it like that, and they come up with these crazy interpretations about the future when that's not how God intended us to read Bible prophecy. All right? See, Bible prophecy is more like the GPS system on your phone, right? It shows you the key information to get you to your destination, but that doesn't mean you won't still hit some potholes along the way. All right? God doesn't reveal all the potholes to us. You see, God's goal for us is not that we walk through life unscathed, but that we learn to trust, that we learn to obey. And so when it comes to the future, God gives us sufficient knowledge for our encouragement, but not exhaustive knowledge because he wants us to learn to walk by faith. 
A second reason God speaks in prophecy is to motivate us to gospel living. That is to live with his kingdom purposes in mind. You see, friends, God reveals the outcome of the future ahead of time to remind us and to inspire us with the truth that he is sovereign, he's in control, and in the end, he wins. And as we learn and meditate upon God's prophetic promises for the future, it should motivate us to live in light of that promised future. We're people of the future, friends. That's who we are as followers of Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 2.11 reminds us that we are simply temporary residents in this world. Peter calls us aliens and strangers. This world is not our home. This present darkness is not our ultimate destiny. And friends, when we as the church live out faithfully the gospel of Jesus Christ in this world, what we do, friends, is we give the watching world a glimpse into the future coming kingdom of God. Isn't that incredible to think about? When you live your life faithfully in light of the gospel, you actually are giving a preview of the future to those watching you in the present. What an incredible thing we've been called to. This is what Jesus was talking about in Matthew 5, 14 through 16. Jesus says, we are the light of the world. Let your light shine so brightly that people see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. When the truth of the gospel shines through our lives, the world sees a preview of the future kingdom of God. You know, we saw an incredible example of this just this past week. You recall last week on Sunday morning, we prayed for our, our brothers and sisters in Christ in Charleston, South Carolina after that tragic church shooting down there. But friends, I'll tell you what, one of the most incredible things the world has witnessed this past week was seeing how Christians responded to that tragedy. We saw how Churches from all backgrounds, from all racial backgrounds, black and white, came together surrounding the AME Church of Charleston with love, with prayer, coming together last Sunday, brothers and sisters in Christ, black and white, worshiping together our common king in unity, in a spirit of harmony. Friends, what a preview of the future. We saw a powerful testimony of God's grace and forgiveness as the families of the shooting victims literally went into the courtroom and faced the man who just days before had gunned down their friends and family and they spoke words of forgiveness to him. They spoke words of gospel truth and hope to that young man. What a powerful, powerful glimpse into the future kingdom of God. I read one skeptic on Twitter this week speaking of the families of these shooting victims. He said they're either insane, liars, or beautiful. See, friends, that's what gospel living does in this world. As the church displays the reality of life in the future kingdom of God, the light of God's truth shines brightly and while the world may not always understand it, like a spotlight blazing in the sky at night, they can't ignore it. It's powerful and it's compelling when we live as people of the future. Now friends, today we're going to move forward in our journey through the book of Zechariah. 
And if you recall, we've been in the book of Zechariah now for three, four weeks, and Zechariah was a prophet who was called to minister to the remnant Jewish community who had come out of exile from Babylon, and they are now being, they've been called by God to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. But if you recall, over the last few weeks, we've seen they've been facing all kinds of trials and discouragements and challenges because the city is in ruins and their temple is a heap of rubble and, and, and they have no way to worship God appropriately. And so they're discouraged. They've got enemies all around them who are thwart, working to thwart their plans and, and they're discouraged. And so God sends prophets like Zechariah, like Haggai, like Malachi to inspire his people to press on, not to lose hope. And so the last couple weeks we've been looking at a series of visions that God gave the prophet Zechariah. It was a series of eight visions given to Zechariah in a single night. Three weeks ago Pastor Rick talked about the first of these three visions where God declared his sovereignty over the nations telling the Jews don't fear the enemies around you because I am in control of all the nations. And then last week, if you recall, we talked about God declaring his sovereignty over our sin and how God provides in his love and grace a covering for our sin. He removes our filthy clothes and covers us with garments of righteousness. An incredible prophetic prophecy pointing to the Messiah of Jesus Christ. And now this week, we're going to look at the remaining four prophecies in in Zechariah chapter 4 through 6. And these, friends, are prophecies about the future, declaring God's sovereignty over the future. In other words, what we're going to see today, friends, you need to understand this, what we're going to see today are settled, matter-of-fact truths about what God is going to accomplish one day. This stuff's already settled in God's mind. This is history written in advance. Now, this morning, we don't, unfortunately, have enough time for an exhaustive look at everything within these four prophetic visions. And I know that's going to disappoint some of you guys, because I know there's some big prophecy buffs in here, you know. We're not going to talk about the colors of the horses, and we're not going to talk about the dimensions of the flying scroll and all this stuff, right? And I know some of you are like, oh, man, that's the best stuff, right? We just don't have time to get into all that stuff this morning, right? But what I want to do for us this morning is I want to highlight two questions, two questions pertaining to each of these passages. Number one, what is God's promise in this vision? Okay, we're going to see a series of four visions. What is God promising his people in this vision? And then number two, what is the admonition or the declaration for us as God's people that we can take away from these visions? All right, so we're gonna see four visions, we're gonna see four promises, and we're gonna see four admonitions as a result of these visions. All right, you all ready? Excited? All right, well, let's dive in. Zechariah chapter four through six. Promise number one, we find in Zechariah chapter four. Promise number one, God will empower his people, so trust, trust. God will empower his people. Our responsibility is to trust him. Let's take a look at this passage from Zechariah chapter four. Then the angel who talked with me returned and wakened me as a man is wakened from his sleep. He asked, what do you see? I answered, I see a solid gold lampstand with a bowl at the top and seven lights on it with seven channels to the lights. Also, there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and one on the left. I asked the angel who talked with me, what are these, my Lord? 
He answered, do you not know what these are? No, my Lord, I replied. So he said to me, this is the word of the Lord, this is rubble. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. What are you, mighty mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you will become level ground. Then he will bring out the capstone, the shouts of God bless it, God bless it. Then the word of the Lord came to me. The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this temple. His hands will also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. Who despises the day of small things? Men will rejoice when they see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. God will empower his people. And so we're called to trust. This is an incredible vision. And here in this vision, we see that God promises to empower his people by his spirit to accomplish his purposes. The lampstand here in this vision represents the people of Israel, God's people, who are called to shine their light brightly to the peoples around them. They were called to represent the hope and the truth of God and his will to the nations around them, the promise of a relationship with our creator. And that light was to shine brightly. And the two trees on each side of the light were olive trees that represented a constant supply of power, a constant supply of energy, of olive oil, fueling those lamps. So the lamp wasn't shining on its own power, but it was shining based on the power, the supplied power given to it by our God. You see, when God calls us to something, he will supply the power needed to accomplish his purposes. And that's the whole point of this vision. God had called the Jews to rebuild the temple. He had called Zerubbabel to lead that project. And they were discouraged. They were dismayed because it was such a monumental task in front of them. And the temple was in a big pile of ruins. But God says, Zerubbabel, I've called you to this. And I am going to empower you to this work. And you're going to accomplish this, Zerubbabel. Friends, you want to know something incredible? It only took four years for the Jews to finish the temple after God had given them this vision. Once they recognized that it wasn't by their might, it wasn't going to be by their power, but it was going to be by God supplying the strength and the protection and the energy that they needed. Once they understood, hey, God is for us. Who can be against us? That temple got built like this. Friends, here's the principle for us today. When God calls He always empowers. And so trust him. Right? If God is calling you, friends, you know, sometimes you feel like God is calling you to a new new act of service, maybe a new place of ministry. Maybe there's somebody in your life that you feel God has put on your heart to reach out to. Maybe there's a coworker or a friend or family member that, that you have just felt led to share the gospel with. Right? And God is calling you to that. Here's the thing, friends. If God calls you, if you will simply step out in faith and follow him, he promises to supply the empowerment you need to fulfill that calling. This isn't just a promise that we see here in Zechariah, but this was a promise Jesus made to us as well. You remember Jesus' last words in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. His last words to his followers. He said, and you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses here in Judea and Samaria and to the very ends of the earth, Jesus said. And it won't be by your might. It won't be by your gifts. It won't be by your skills and talents and abilities. It's going to be by my 
power that I will accomplish my purposes in the world using you. Trust me. Trust me. That's what God calls us to. You guys, you guys remember back in our study of the book of Ephesians, we talked about that Greek word power. Jesus says you will receive power. The Greek word power, dunamis. It's where we get our English word dynamite from. You guys remember we talked about JJ from Good Times? Dynamite, right? Friends, that's what Jesus promises us. When we step out in faith, his Holy Spirit comes, comes beside us and empowers us with this supernatural, dynamic, explosive empowerment. And friends, if God calls you to something, you gotta be sure there is nothing that you cannot accomplish if you'll simply trust him and step out in faith. Why? Because he's promised his power to you. His power to you. One of the most incredible sections of this first vision is when God says to Zechariah, who despises the day of small things? Some translations note, who dares despise the day of small things? You see, the Jews, they were looking at this temple laying in a heap of rubble, and they were realizing this is never going to be as grand and glorious as Solomon's temple. It's not going to be the same. And God says, who dares despise the day of small things? What you think is just a small, insignificant project is going to be used by me to transform the world. Don't despise small things. I think the tendency for a lot of us as followers of Jesus Christ is to despise the small things. You know, we feel these callings, we sense God leading us to these grand purposes, but then we look at ourselves and we say, well, who am I? Who am I? I'm not, I'm not gifted. I'm not skilled. I, you know, I can't strum the guitar like Samantha. I can't bang on the drums like Jeff back here. I, you know, I'm never going to be a preacher standing up on the platform like Pastor Rick or Pastor Jason. What do I have to offer? And a lot of us, we never meet our potential for the kingdom of God because we just sit in despair over the small things that we think we are. But friends, I'll tell you something. Throughout the Bible and throughout history, God has made a habit of using small things. That's what he does. When we step out in faith and trust in him, he comes alongside and empowers us and he uses us in incredible ways for his glory. You know, just, a, just an example of this. If, when you think of Jesus' disciples, right? Let's, let's throw Judas out. He doesn't count. When you think of the good ones, right? Who would you say was the most significant of Jesus' disciples? You know, when you think of those guys, who would you say made the biggest impact on the kingdom of God? I see a few of you kind of mouthing the word Peter, right? Peter. Well, here's something I'll say, friends. I don't think it was Peter. I don't think it was John or James. I think it's somebody else. I think it was one of Jesus' more relatively unknown disciples, who made the biggest impact. It was a guy named Andrew. Andrew, how many of you have heard of the disciple Andrew? Do you know what Andrew did to impact the kingdom? Andrew led his brother, Peter, to Jesus. Andrew introduced his brother, Peter, to Jesus. We never talk about Andrew. But if there was no Andrew, there would be no Peter, and God used Peter to change the world. See, friends, don't despise the day of small things. God might not call you to be a Peter, but God uses Andrews all the time in powerful ways. If we are willing to be used by God, if we're willing to step out in faith, 
there's nothing that God can't accomplish through us by his power. Don't ever despise your small stature. Don't ever discount your potential. And don't ever doubt your value to the kingdom of God. Step out in faith, trust him, and know that he's promised his empowerment. Promise number two this morning from these visions in Zechariah. God will judge sinners by his word. So obey. God is going to judge sinners by his word, and he calls us to obey. Zechariah 5, 1 through 4. Let's read this together. I looked again, and there before me was a flying scroll. He asked me, what do you see? I answered, I see a flying scroll, 20 cubits long and 10 cubits wide. And he said to me, this is the curse going out over the whole land. For according to what it says on one side, every thief will be banished. And according to what it says on the other, everyone who swears falsely will be banished. The Lord Almighty declares, I will send it out and it will enter the house of the thief and the house of him who swears falsely by my name. It will remain in his house and destroy it, both its timbers and its stones. God is going to judge sinners by his word. Now, many of you guys know I like to use visual aids up here in my sermons, right? Illustrations. Uh, and I promise you, I did my best to get a flying scroll in here this morning, all right? But the thing was, the property, the building and grounds committee, they vetoed my idea. So you just, you're going to have to blame those guys. It wasn't my fault. I had this great flying scroll planned for you, but we're just going to have to go with the, uh, with the sermon this morning. But what's going on in this vision? The scroll here, friends, represents the judgment of God's word. It represents God's law. And we're given just two examples of the law of God, but it's representative really of the totality of God's word or his law that stands as a warning to sinners. And God's law stands as a warning to sinners declaring repent or you're going to be found guilty. If you recall from last week, friends, remember our sin, we're all covered in filth. And the problem is in the eyes of a holy God, our filth is offensive. And God's law, God's word is the mirror that reveals our filth to us. It's the mirror that reveals our sin. You guys have seen those speed detector speed limit signs right on many of the roads like if you go up on highway 8 main street lindstrom you know you go driving down uh west out of town and if you're going 37 miles an hour boom 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 you know that light's going to flash and it's going to display that you are rebelling against the speed limit right that's how the word of god is the word of god is the standard that reveals our sin just like that sign is the standard that reveals the law of the speed limit God's word is the standard that reveals his eternal law by which we identify and recognize our rebellion against him. Look how Paul describes it in Romans chapter 3, verses 19 through 20. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. Friends, we know what our sin is because God has given us a standard by which to judge our behavior against, right? And when we look at the standard, God's revealed truth, it points out our shortcomings, our rebellion, our fallenness, and it convicts us. That's why God gave the law. 
Romans 3.23 then goes on and says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. God's word is a judge convicting sinners of our sin as the law exposes the reality of our sin to us. And as we saw last week, the dire problem of this is that the wages of our sin is death because God is holy and we are not. And if you remember last week, we talked about God and his grace. When we trust in Jesus Christ, he removes our filth and he clothes us in Christ's righteousness. He allows us to enter into the presence of our holy God and have a relationship with him. Friends, if you weren't here last week, get the CD, listen to it online because it is the most important message. It's the most important message. Not, because, not my message, it's God's message, the most important message we all need to hear of how God has provided a way for us to be saved from the sin that condemns us. And it's God's word, friends, that reveals the reality of our sin. This vision tells us that God's word is gonna go out throughout the whole land. It will enter the home of everyone living in rebellion against God, ultimately bringing destruction upon them. Friends, do you know that this prophecy is being fulfilled this very day? Today, mission agencies are translating God's word into all the known languages around the world. Pretty soon, every language around the world will have access to God's word. God's word is entering into every home across the world. How so? Friends, we have this incredible thing today called the internet. We have something called smartphones. People all over the world today, like never before in history, have access to the word of God. It has entered into almost every home in the world through technology. God prophesied that this would take place. It's happening today. Now here's the thing, the reality is there's a lot of people who don't like the conviction that God's word brings. And so there are a lot of folks today who are trying to skirt around the truths of God's word. They're trying to find loopholes. They claim God's word doesn't really mean what it says. But they're flirting with disaster. This past month, one of the world's greatest extreme sports athletes died in a tragic accident in Yosemite National Park. His name was Dean Potter. He was world famous as a rock climber. He climbed some of the tallest cliffs without ropes. He would, he would cross canyons on tight ropes, on slack lines, without any rope or harness holding him up. He became famous for his death-defying exploits. One of the things that he was into in recent years is something called base jumping, where he would put on this wingsuit and he would jump off these cliffs in Yosemite National Park, cliffs that are over a mile high, and he would go flying through these narrow canyons, flying around rock obstacles, defying death, until last month when he tragically crashed into one of those rock formations. Friends, like Dean Potter, a lot of people try to fly around or skirt the truths of God's word. But God's word is an immovable rock and eventually our sins are gonna crash against it. If not in this life, on the day of judgment. But here's the good news. For those of us who obey God's word, instead of being an instrument of judgment, God's word is found to be a source of life, of fulfillment, of hope. Look at what King David said in Psalm 119, an incredible chapter. I'd encourage you to spend some time reading through Psalm 119. But look what David says about God's word. I run in the path of your commands, for you have set my heart free. 
Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light for my path. Your statutes are my heritage forever. They are the joy of my heart. Great peace have they who love your law and nothing can make them stumble. Friends, on and on throughout this chapter, it's the longest chapter in the Bible and the whole thing is David's repeated praise for the power of God's word. When we trust and obey God's word, it leads to life and life to the full. So obey. Promise number three in our visions for today, Zechariah chapter five, God will banish idolatry from his presence. So worship, worship. Zechariah five, five through 11 says this, then the angel who was speaking to me came forward and said to me, look up and see what this is that is appearing. I asked, what is it? He replied, it's a measuring basket. And he added, this is the iniquity of the people throughout the land. Then the cover of lead was raised and there in the basket sat a woman. He said, this is wickedness. And he pushed her back into the basket and pushed the lead cover down over its mouth. Then I looked up and there before me were two women with the wind in their wings. They had wings like those of a stork and they lifted up the basket between heaven and earth. Where are they taking the basket? I asked the angel who was speaking to me. He replied to the country of Babylonia to build a house for it. When it is ready, the basket will be set there in its place. God will banish idolatry from his presence. You know, throughout the Old Testament, the image of a woman is often used to represent idolatry. She's the harlot, the temptress, the seductress. And here, the woman in this vision is the personification of all wickedness and idolatry. And God reveals to Zechariah that he will one day completely banish the evil of idolatry from his land. Now, friends, what is idolatry? Idolatry is simply this. Paul describes it in Romans chapter one. Idolatry is simply exchanging the truth of God for a lie and worshiping created things rather than the creator. That's what idolatry is. It's exchanging the truth of God for a lie and worshiping created things instead of the creator. And friends, what a pathetic trade that is. You know, Instead of worshiping and enthroning the God of the universe on our hearts, we so often take him off the throne of our hearts and instead we seek after and we enthrone these idols, these shadows of the ultimate reality. And they never satisfy, do they? You know, we pursue things like money and popularity and relationships and pleasure and all of these things, things that God created good for our enjoyment, but when we enthrone them on our lives as Lord, they expose themselves of being frauds because they can't fulfill, they don't fulfill. It's only the creator who can fulfill. And the problem with idols, friends, have you ever noticed this? These idols, they always just want more and more from us. And we get enslaved to these things. They never satisfy. They make these false promises. Oh, you know, come and try some of this, right? And we pursue these idols and we get temporary fulfillment. But then the next day it just comes back again and it wants more and it wants more. And pretty soon we are enslaved to these false idols that we set up in our lives. It's so absurd. Look at The early church father, Augustine of Hippo, he had a great quote about idolatry. He says, woe to the reckless soul who departs from God hoping to find something better than him in the very things he has created. (laughs) 
Isn't that, isn't that just silly? Right? We expect to find something better than the God of the universe in the stuff he created. Why would we worship created things when the creator offers us a relationship with him? It's just foolishness. Now, for many of us as Christians, our idolatry isn't that blatant. It tends to be more of a subtle kind. You see, for a lot of us as Christians, we too commit idolatry. But we justify it by not going too far, you know? We sort of flirt with our idols, but we don't go all the way with them. You know, we kind of sit on this fence, right? We do this thing where we sit on this fence and we think, you know what, I'm going to have one leg dangling over here, just kind of, you know, I like to kind of flirt, mess around with my idols once in a while, but then I'm going to have another leg dangling over here and I'm all good because I'm still, I'm still walking with the Lord here. I got my leg over on his side of the fence, right? And we think we can sit on this fence and be okay. But the problem is, friends, there's a word for that. It's called compromise, right? And here's what I'm going to tell you about the fence. If you find yourself sitting on the fence, you need to be careful because that's a very dangerous place to be. Here's the truth. Every fence has an owner, and Satan owns that fence. Man, Satan is more than happy to see you sitting on the fence, sitting on the fence of compromise. If he's got you sitting on the fence, he loves it because he owns that fence. He's already won. God calls us to something more. As Christians, we're called to worship. And here's the thing about worship. Worship pushes out idolatry from our lives. The more we worship, the less room there is for idolatry in our lives. What is worship, friends? Worship is more than simply singing three or four songs on a Sunday morning here at church. Worship is enthroning Jesus as Lord over all areas of our lives. Worship is acknowledging daily God's sovereign over all, over our work, over our money, over our family, over our marriages, over our relationship. Jesus is sovereign over all that stuff. He's the Lord, not that stuff, right? And here's the thing, as we worship by enthroning Jesus as Lord over all areas of our life, not only do we find ultimate fulfillment and satisfaction, but that's where we find the greatest freedom. Because Jesus is where we find fulfillment. The idols that keep asking us for more and more and more, once we dethrone them and put Jesus as Lord on our lives, suddenly we find the fulfillment we look for. And it always satisfies. Jesus says, I'm like a river of living water that flows up from within you, and it always satisfies. Friends, why would you exchange that for anything less? And so this is why we are called to be people who worship, enthroning Jesus as Lord over all areas of life. That's where you'll find freedom. That's where you'll find hope and fulfillment. There's nothing better. Nothing better. Promise number four, and I'll close with this. God is going to establish his reign over the earth. So hope. Hope in him. We're not going to take time to read through Zechariah chapter six because of the clock and because it's lengthy. We'll have it on the screen here, but let me just make some comments about this, and I'd encourage you to read through it on your own later. In this final vision, God's chariots established peace throughout the world. 
And most notably, we read here that God's spirit is at rest in the land of the north, the territory and direction from which Israel's enemies throughout history had invaded so many times. God brings peace by defeating his people's enemies. We also see in this vision Joshua, the high priest of the remnant Jews, being given a crown, the crown of a king. Joshua is called the branch, and he's enthroned as the royal priest. Now, if you remember from last week, we discussed this term, the branch. It's a reference to the coming Messiah. And so what is actually happening here in this prophecy in Zechariah 6 is that Joshua himself is not being made the king, but his crowning is a symbolic foreshadowing of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, the one who is the great high priest who will one day reign as the king of kings and will usher in a new era of righteousness and justice. Friends, one day Jesus Christ is going to reign as the priest king over all the earth. And it's because of this promise, friends, that we hope, we hope in our coming king. I know many of us were greatly discouraged this past Friday when the Supreme Court ruled to legalize gay marriage across our nation. And then later that evening, my heart grieved as I saw the White House bathed in rainbow colors. But friends, let me remind you Jesus is still risen. He's still in control of the cosmos. And one day, every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that he is Lord of all. If you take any encouragement from these visions, friends, let it be that we have a basis for hope. The enemies of righteousness will one day face God's judgment and the great priest king, Jesus Christ, is going to right every wrong. A new day is dawning, friends, as Revelations 21 describes it, when the king, the priest king comes, a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city in the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, now the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. Friends, today the darkness dances. The enemy applauds, and we daily battle these fallen natures of ours. But as C.S. Lewis once wrote in the Chronicles of Narnia, Aslan is on the move. The king is coming, friends. The future's already been written, and his word is trustworthy and true. So hope, don't despair. Live in light of our promised future. Live for the glory of the coming king. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these incredible prophecies, promises about the future, Lord. Promises of your empowerment, promises that you will one day rid this world of sin, of wickedness. Promises, Lord, that you will be the king of your people. God, help us to hope in you. Help us to trust in you. 
Help us, Lord, to rely on your empowerment, the empowerment that you promise us, Lord. Help us to do that so that we might shine our light brightly to the world around us. God, help us reveal the truth of the coming kingdom of God to the world around us by living faithfully, by living consistently with the truths we profess. Help us to be faithful to those great callings you've given us, Lord, so that the world might see that there is a God who reigns and a God who offers grace and that there is hope for forgiveness and new life. We thank you, Jesus, for all you are and all you promise to be one day in the future, our coming King, in Jesus' name, amen.